Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 5th of December, Dan Hater done two sessions at Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Dan looked at the topic of eschatology. Dan is on the staff at Life Church Peterborough and also runs the Relational Mission Year Team Training Programme. Let's take a listen to the session. Before, So we're going to look at eschatology in this session, which is a kind of study of the end things. But before we do that, are there any questions on anything we've done um, so far that you'd like to ask for clarification on or anything that you're not too sure about? It's funny, Dan, I, your notes are so comprehensive. I don't want to jump in here, but yeah. every time I want to ask a question, I just read your notes. I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> we should great. do that. If yeah. you have a question, yeah, read the notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> like, I'm, for me, I'm, I'm not asking anything because I'm just, the, the oh. notes are so comprehensive. The teaching is, yeah. So, right. That's from me anyway. I don't know if anybody else any questions. Brilliant. Well, the the offer of questions stands at any at, at any point again. So just to reiterate, if if there is anything you want clarifying or um or so on, whether you want to pop that in the chat or unmute yourself, then that's that is great. Um, yeah, like like I said earlier, the, the the notes are kind of designed to be much more in depth and complete than what we're able to actually go through now. Um, and so what I what I'd like to do with eschatology, I think it's first of all just convince you if you're not convinced already that it, it it matters that it's worth looking at um so eschatology we're talking obviously revelation does contain some eschatology kind of study of the last things there's quite a lot of it in there um but eschatology more broadly is the topic where we're talking about the study of the last things um it's what the word literally means it's kind of word word of the last words study of the last things and again as with revelation it can sometimes be the kind of topic that people run away from because it it sounds a bit strange we we don't want to end up becoming uh, speculative and so um i think it sometimes requires a bit of encouragement for us to realize the value of looking at it. so here's just a few reasons amongst many others why the study of the last things matters and then we're going to look at the last things um, and hopefully we're going to get excited about it i think one of them is it's regularly emphasized in the bible the bible has a huge amount to say about what happens in the future um and so the kind of phrase where i i know what people mean and it comes out of a good heart when people say something like as long as i'm with jesus i don't care what happens approach there's a there's a really good side to that which is kind of like you know at the end of the day i want jesus that's a really healthy thing um but however much of a ring of truth there is to that approach the bible does give us quite a lot of details and um some of the passages that are talking about the end of time um particularly first corinthians 15 would be, ex be an example the apostle paul is really keen for his for his converts to understand what is going to happen when christ returns and so i think although yes the big deal really is that we get to spend eternity with jesus and whatever that looks like that's amazing the fact that the bible does talk about it quite a lot and goes into some details means that i think it's worth us going into some details um, another another reason it's important is the eschatology, the study of the last things helps to make sense of the Bible storyline. If there is no ultimate final destination, then what you've been looking at over the last two years um, 
kind of ends in a little bit of anticlimax, really, if it's not all heading somewhere. Um, it's also hugely practical. It's um, it's really the kind of thing that doesn't shouldn't lead to us being obsessed with graphs and charts primarily, but the kind of thing that should lead us to live lives where we are living lives where we're willing to sacrifice because we know there's a reward where we're able to endure suffering because we know there's a better time coming where we're able to experience joy in the midst of adversity because we know that that's not going to be what it is for the whole of eternity and at the end of first corinthians 15 which um we probably won't have time to look at the whole the whole chapter but is one of the most dense discussions of the end times finishes with paul saying therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Mm. Paul has just spent 57 verses doing some of the most dense, detailed, intricate theology that you could probably get. And his conclusion is, therefore, keep on going because you know it's not in vain. And I think that's the kind of attitude that eschatology should lead to. Not primarily confusion, but oh, I want to keep going because I know that there's hope. It gives us hope in a, in a world of uncertainty and injustice. It helps us to deal with suffering and death. We had a funeral on, on Monday, one of the um, um, a, a wonderful man who used to be one of the elders of the church that we're part of and um, just lived a, a, a phenomenal life of commitment to God. But to be at that funeral and to know that however sad it is to know that for for him, it's currently rest in peace and then in the future rise in glory provides a huge amount of comfort and hope to know that. It, that's not the end to know that actually at the moment he is far more joyful than he's ever been and that there's a day coming when we will meet him again um, and we will meet him again in brand new resurrection bodies it helps us in those times of mourning first thessalonians 4 says i don't want you to be ignorant of those who have fallen asleep or those who have died it's a, a euphemism um, so that you may not mourn as those who have no hope paul doesn't say so that you may not mourn mourning is right and appropriate when people pass away it would be wrong if we didn't mourn but he says i don't want you to mourn as those who have no hope so there is such a thing as mourning with hope and that's what we do at christian funerals we are able to mourn with the hope that it's not over and um so there's a few reasons but what we're going to do in terms of um, thinking through eschatology um Oh, sorry, there's, there's just been a, a question. So I'll deal with it now, just in case I don't. There's been a question about the um, the order of the bride being the church. What about times and places where the institutional churches have lost the plot? So that's a really good question. Um, I think we need to differentiate between um, the church and then the institution as such. So it's not that the two aren't interchangeable. So I'm not saying for a minute, oh gosh, the Anglican church is apostate. We should just ignore it whatsoever. All I'm saying is that um, there is a difference between the visible church in the sense of those who are claiming to be followers of Jesus, those who are claiming to be true churches, and what you might call the invisible church, which is those who are actually genuine followers of Jesus. And most of the time, I would hope the two overlap almost completely. But you're right, there are times where you think, I can't, I can't imagine that genuine Christians who have been born again and filled with the Spirit would ever end up doing this kind of thing. And I think at that point, we need to recognize that um, there is a difference between those who truly are the church in the sense of the people of God, but that doesn't always overlap completely with the institution of the church in that sense. So, and I think you, you do see that in the New Testament as well, the idea that 
you would have churches where there are those who claim the name of Christ who aren't truly Christians. Um, even that you would have churches who claim to be Christian churches and you look under the bonnet and you think there's nothing Christian about this. You're not, you're not a true genuine church. Um, and so I think we have to have that category. And I think when Revelation is talking about the bride, it is talking not so much of the institution of the church, it's talking about the people of God. Um, it's talking about those who are under the headship of Christ, who love Jesus um, and who belong to him. But that's a really, really good question. But I think that helps us to have a category to make sense of what about when the institutional church loses the plot? And um, it can be easy to think institutional church and think, well, Church of England, for example, or other churches and other, um, other denominations. Um, we have to remember that individual churches, even free, like free churches can lose the plot as well. And, and at that point, so I think we have to have that category for, for making sense of it. But that's a good question. Thanks for, for asking. Um, right, so we're gonna take a, a step back from, first of all, we're not gonna talk about what happens to me as an individual in the future. We're gonna get onto that. What we're gonna start with is to think, what is the goal of history? Because if we get that sorted, Number one, we're not going to make everything about ourselves, which is definitely a risk in our in our culture. We live in a very individualistic culture. But secondly, what we do believe about ourselves will make sense within the big picture story. And so what I'm going to do is share the screen because this is if we were in person, I would get a few people up the front and uh, get people to hold a timeline and then do some stuff with the timeline. But we'll we'll rely on some slides for this. Um, you could talk about three stages within biblical history in terms of um, the understanding of the goal of history. The first of those stages would be the moment of creation, Genesis 1 to 2. So at this stage, there is no evil in the world. There is no sin. And so the plan is God's creation is a place for, hum for God to dwell with human beings in the image of God. And the mission that God gives human beings is to expand the temple of his creation, to expand the, pl the, the place where his presence dwells to the ends of the earth until the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Eden was not the end goal. Eden was meant to become something that grows and fills the whole earth. And so in that sense, the climax of creation from the point of view of Genesis 1 to 3, the eschatology of Genesis 1 to 3 is the whole of creation is filled with the glory of God. Mm. Now that doesn't change. At, that goal doesn't change at any point throughout the story of the Bible. But there are events that happen that means that that mean that the way you get to that goal changes in light of different things. This is how history works. You've got a goal, something happens, the way you get to that goal changes. And so what we then find is in light of the fall, and basically for the rest of the Old Testament, we have a way of thinking about that goal that is slightly different. When we're in Eden, we're thinking there is a trajectory presumably a linear trajectory towards the point where the whole of creation is filled with the glory of God. But in light of the fall, we then end up in a position where there's death and sin and injustice and evil and so on in the world. And so at that point, when you read the Old Testament, there's this idea that that linear thing has been sliced into two and that there's a decisive break between the current age, this age, and the age to come. That there would be a time where God would intervene, would bring judgment on evil, would resurrect the dead of his people. So those who have died and who belonged to the people of God, who trusted in God, would be physically raised from the dead. That there would be a brand new creation, not floating off into heaven, but a brand new physical creation within which um, God's people would live in the age to come. And so for the Old Testament, when you're thinking 
thinking, what's the goal of creation? They're thinking, well, we're waiting for the day when the day of the Lord comes, when God comes to intervene and make all things right. And at that point, everything evil will be destroyed and we enter into the age to come, which is an eternal age of bliss and enjoying living in the presence of God. But something happens that complicates that a little bit more, or at least it doesn't complicate it. It's just like we're taking a magnifying glass and we're looking at the day of the Lord and we realize it's not as straightforward as a day of the, the day of the Lord coming and everything's better after. But actually, the New Testament forces us to realize that there's a little bit more to the day of the Lord than a single day. And so when we get to the New Testament, we realize in light of Jesus, there's what we might call the overlap of the ages. So we are currently living within this age. But when Jesus appeared and we get the death and resurrection of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus inaugurate or begin the age to come. The, Jesus is the first person to be raised from the dead to everlasting life. And so that means that new creation has begun. The Holy Spirit's poured out, new creation has begun, but we still live within a world where there is death, evil, sin, and sickness and decay. And so what's happened is instead of having this, what feels like a singular event, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, is the New Testament in light of Jesus makes us put a magnifying glass to that event and helps us realize the day of the Lord in a sense is actually a double event. We get the first appearing of Jesus, the death and resurrection, new creation begins within old creation. And we are waiting for the moment where Christ returns and we get final judgment, resurrection, new heavens, new earth. And at that point, the age to come fully comes and this age ends up ceasing. And at this point, we are living in the overlap of the ages. So from the time of Jesus's resurrection all the way to his return, we are living in what theologians call the overlap of the ages or the now and the not yet. New creation has begun, but it's not fully come yet because we're still living within the present world so we get the new life of the spirit living within us but at the same time we still have the flesh that is trying to tempt us to go away from god and sin because we still live in a fallen world and so we get this period from the resurrection of jesus all the way to his second coming that we are currently living within where there's a sense of discomfort there's a sense of joy because new creation is already at work within us but there's a sense of discomfort because death and decay and sin and evil are still present and will not be dealt the decisive blow until Jesus returns. And so that's kind of broad view. If, if you're thinking, how am I meant to think about in very broad strokes the future? The way we are meant to think about it in very broad strokes is we are currently living within the age where new creation has begun, but has not fully come yet. And that leads to some discomfort. And what I'd like to do is to pop you into breakout rooms for about five minutes to have a little bit of a, a practical discussion. We're living in this overlap age here. And so what that can lead to is having to walk a little bit of a tightrope balance because there is such a thing as technical term coming, something called over-realized eschatology. Some of you may have heard of that. Some of you may have just heard of that. The idea behind that is over-realized eschatology is an understanding of the age that we live in as if we're fully in the age to come. So it's the kind of, well, basically the age to come's here. We are, we don't re there's not really any more to expect. That would be over-realized eschatology. But there's also such a thing as under-realized eschatology, which is 
we basically just have to wait until Jesus returns. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing, nothing spiritual of any good is going to happen in this age. We're just, we're holding on tight for Jesus to come back and we can't expect any success or victory until Jesus comes back. That would be under-realized eschatology. And um, what I'd like you to do in your groups is to kind of just think through both of those. Now you may, you may feel like you float one way or the other. I think we constantly do. We're walking a tightrope of saying we are living already with, we are already new creations. But at the same time, we live within an old creation. So there's that tension. And being a Christian, in part, is learning to walk within that tension. And so what I'd like you to do for five minutes is to discuss what do you think the dangers of either extreme would be? What might that practically look like? If someone thinks there's not, yeah, Jesus is coming back, that's great, but we can basically expect everything already. What's the danger of that? If someone's saying, yeah, we can't really expect anything until Jesus returns. What's the danger of that? What might that practically look like? It'd be interesting to hear some of your thoughts. So should we go for five minutes in breakout rooms and then come back and we can um, then uh, have a bit of time to feedback? Great. Well, let's, let's maybe have um, a few minutes, uh, maybe just two or three minutes of, um, were there any, any particular things that came up in your room that you were thinking here? Let, let's start with maybe um, danger of over-realized eschatology. So thinking, yeah, to be honest, Jesus coming back, there's not really much that that's going to change. Um, we're basically fully there. Did anyone pick up on any dangers, what that might, what that might practically look like, that we just have to make sure we're navigating that, that good tension of living in the in-between? no or no one's too keen to share i wonder oh i might i might i might have to be naughty and put and put someone on the spot um so uh if you if you want to save one of your uh, your group members from, <laughs> from that um what andy who, who who would you who would you suggest asking to to feedback i don't um I well, let's see. Who do we have? We had um, Kingsley and Beverly, Keith and Luke were in a group together. Does someone yeah. from that group want to share? Yeah, let's go for that. And then maybe for the for the next one, we can go for the someone yeah. from the next group. Yeah, I, I can share. Um, right, go for it, Luke. I guess we kind of spoke about at both extremes. Um, you can kind of almost neglect, um, you know, loving your neighbour because in one circumstance, you know, Jesus, there's not going to be any change. We're already kind of in that time the need isn't there and at the other end um you know there isn't anything we can can do jesus will sort it when he comes so yeah. therefore we're not we shouldn't do anything either that's a really good point yeah. the wrong yeah. the wrong conclusion but could be possible conclusions and kind of potentially have been seen in in historical times yeah that's a good point that can be one way that it does go sour actually on both extremes is a, is a, a in, in a weird way, a lack of evangelism. So I think that could be where, yeah, either you're thinking, well, we're not going to see any success anyway, so why bother? Or even just social outreach, loving your neighbour. Um, but the flip side, I suppose, yeah, the flip side could be true as well, because you think, well, we're already there. There's nothing to change. So I think that that could be, yeah, absolutely one way that that, that could go sour. Um, Keith, you've un you've unmuted yourself. Did you want to, to add anything or was that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we were discussing the two cases because Obviously, the important thing is to know the truth. Which one is it, yeah. under, over, or is it in the middle? Yeah. And theologians disagree about that. Mm. But actually, it doesn't. It, what we discussed was it doesn't really matter because you call to the same things anyway. So if this is the end state, we're still called to love our neighbour. We're still called to love one another and the world. We're still called. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, your action should be positive, not one of apathy. Yeah. You're never called to apathy in the Bible, right? So... And, and and if it's if it's 
uh, if it's overstated, then you know we're in this we're in this middle phase where we want more people to enjoy that. So mm. the response is what the Bible calls us to. And while we're trying to figure out is it under, is it over, is it in the middle, mm. we'll still be doing the same things. Yeah, that's a that's a really healthy response actually, because I think you you can you can sometimes allow your understanding of eschatology to overly dictate the way that you live. But I think you're right. There's this in a sense, even if over-realized eschatology is completely true or under-realized eschatology is completely true, we've got clear commands and advice from elsewhere in, the, in, in, in scripture anyway that's not even necessarily talking about eschatology in terms of how we should live. So I think that's a really, I think that's particularly help, helpful when it comes to stuff like the millennium. Some people, their view of the millennium dictates everything that they do. And you think, well, it didn't seem to dictate everything that the early church did um, in quite that in quite that way um yeah so no I, I take your point that's a really that's a really good one um i think one area that i might highlight is would probably be the area of um sickness and suffering and how we how we think about that and deal with that would probably be a a classic practical area where um there are dangers to overrealized and underrealized so i think a, a danger of underrealized eschatology when it comes to sickness and suffering and so on is to kind of just end up in a stoic kind of well that's just the way it is. And you almost, you don't, there's, there's no sense of faith of praying for people for healing. There's no faith to really see um, signs and wonders and, and, and kind of miraculous healings because you think, well, none of this is going to happen until Jesus comes back anyway. So that'd be under-realized, could be quite, quite dangerous in that sense. But the same would also be true of over-realized. And you can see it going wrong in a really extreme way where you'd have certain people teaching that, well, basically, if you're ill, it basically means that you're lacking faith. And I think that would be an extreme over-realized view, which is the understanding that um, if if someone is ill, then they will always end up being healed, provided that they've got enough faith because the, the new age has come. And I think, no, what you see in the New Testament is a much more of a, a much more messy kind of environment where there is faith to see people healed. But there's also this mystery in the meantime of why is it that some people get healed and some people don't and that that willingness to be able to persevere in praying for the sick to be healed whilst also um, being able to deal with i i realize that within the age that we live in there will still be a certain amount of suffering and sickness and death and i think so that might be one area where I've seen certain groups of churches go too far to either extreme, where it, it either becomes, well, we're not going to bother praying for the sick because that will die out with the apostles anyway. To be honest, that's probably not so much under-realized eschatology as a, perhaps, a, I, I think, a wrong view of spiritual gifts. But I've also seen the other extreme where it ends up being, um, you just don't know how to deal with the fact that not everyone gets healed when you pray for them. And you think, actually, I think biblically there is a way of dealing with it, which is to say we live in this uncomfortable middle middle ground where there is still suffering and sickness and death. But there is also an expectation that we'd see breakthrough and healing and pointing to the power of Jesus in the midst. So there's some there are some practical implications. But I think you're right, Keith, that we do need to make sure that we don't allow one particular theological framework to then dictate the whole way that you live when actually there's so much advice and commands from elsewhere in scripture anyway about how we live anyway moving moving on um we're now going to narrow in a little bit and talk about what you might call personal eschatology so we've talked about the big picture stuff but now we're talking about okay what about individuals what about us and we're going to do that in kind of two steps one is to talk about death and the other one is to talk about resurrection. 
Uh, so let's briefly talk about death first of all. I think when if you ask your average Joe blogs, what is what is the hope for Christians? They would probably answer something like going to heaven when you die. And um, what's interesting is the Bible doesn't actually teach that much about what happens after you die. It's much more in, interested in what happens after life after death. Now I'll explain what I mean by that later. It's, it, it, there's some stuff in there about what happens when you die. The Bible seems to be much more interested, not so much in life after death, but in life after life after death. And some of you will be really puzzled by that expression. Don't worry, I'll clarify what I mean by that in a minute. But nonetheless, the Bible does talk a little bit about life after death. And um, let's just, in a sense, run through the run through the essentials that what happens when an individual dies? Well, the first thing that we realize is that the body and the soul are separated in the sense that the body rests in the ground or is cremated or, or, or whatever. But the soul, what you might call the the immaterial part of you um, goes to and there's a number of different ways of um, speaking of this. Sheol is a word that the Old Testament uses to refer to the realm of the dead. New Testament uses the word Hades, which is kind of a it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew words. So Sheol, Hebrew, Old Testament, Hades, New Testament is written in Greek. And so there's it's kind of referring to the same thing. Paradise would be another word. And so there's this idea that um, when when someone dies, their body and their soul are separated. And those who are followers of Jesus go to what you might call paradise or with the Lord is another way that Paul talks about it. And so you're disembodied. You're not within your body, but you are in the presence of Jesus. And those who aren't followers of Jesus would go to what you might call Hades. Um, now, what's important to say is that Hades is not the same thing as hell. Hades is a Hades and paradise, actually, for that matter, are temporary places. So the end goal isn't that you die and your soul goes to be with Jesus for the whole of eternity that is actually a temporary state and so that's something that we so we need to be thinking about what happens after that state but let's just spend a few more minutes on on death for christians death is a very death is a very different dynamic to for non-christians in terms of how we approach death and i think there are a, a, just a couple of quotes you got them on, on your notes here but from um, different passages in the New Testament that speak of a Christian approaching death and the way a Christian can approach death. And one of those would be 2 Corinthians 5. We are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So Paul's saying, my ideal, to be honest, I would prefer to be away from the body. In other words, I prefer to be dead and my soul be in the presence of Jesus um, than to be in the body in this present age. That's what he's saying. Now, Paul also realizes that in the age to come, which we'll see that in a bit, he will get a brand new body. And that's a kind of that's the ultimate hope. But he's saying, you know what, if it's a toss up between the present age where, yes, the Holy Spirit is living within us. But in a sense, we are away from the Lord. We're not with Jesus in that in that real sense. He says, if I have a choice between that and not having my body and my soul being in the presence of the Lord, I'll take being in the presence of the Lord in my soul. And then Revelation 14 says, um, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. 
And so in that sense, as I said earlier, first, first Thessalonians four helps us. We do, we do mourn for those who die, but we mourn as those who have hope. There is an approach to death as a Christian that is able to say, along with the apostle Paul, to live as Christ, as long as I'm in this body, in this age, I'm gonna live for Christ, but to die is gain. And the reason for that is that when we die, our soul goes into the presence of Jesus. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story isn't your soul existing forever in the presence of Jesus. The end of the story is actually that your soul one day will be reunited with a brand new recreated body. And uh, the way I want to help illustrate that is actually to use an illustration from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. At some point uh, in your own time, I would encourage you to read carefully through the whole of 1 Corinthians 15. It's a it's a dense chapter. It's not the easiest chapter. So you might want to use a study Bible or a commentary to help you as you get through it. But it's a chapter that is talking about what the ultimate hope for believers is and the ultimate hope for believers isn't life after death the ultimate hope for believers is life after life after death or to explain it in a slightly clearer way there's a day coming in the future where jesus will return and when jesus returns he will resurrect those who are his followers to everlasting bodily life and the way paul illustrates that in first corinthians 15 let's read verse 20 onwards paul says this in fact christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep okay what does he mean by that jesus has been raised to the dead to ever from the dead to everlasting life and paul calls that the first fruits now if you're a if you happen to be a farmer you will know that first fruits is basically the first produce the first crops that appear in a field you've sown your field you've watered your field you've done all of the prep and the first fruits are the first it's the first produce of your field now you don't look at the first fruits and go brilliant i've got five strawberries that's it i'm going to be really i'm this winter's going to be great i'm going to have five whole strawberries to eat no you look at those five strawberries and you think those are the first fruits that shows me that there's more to come and that's the illustration that paul is using with the resurrection of jesus he's saying jesus has been raised from the dead that's not just a, an isolated event that is a demonstration of the fact that there's more resurrections to come in the future it's a little bit like thunder and lightning or dominoes like thunder you when you hear thunder sorry when you see lightning you know that's going to be followed by thunder when you push the first domino down you know that the final one in the row is going to go down as well because jesus has been raised from the dead there's a day coming when all who are in Christ will also be raised from the dead. And Paul continues, he says, as by a man came death, by Adam came death, by a man has also come about the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Paul's saying, there is a single thing called the resurrection of the dead and that happens in two stages first stage jesus is raised from the dead second stage when jesus returns jesus's followers are raised from the dead and that is what we have to look forward to our hope is not ultimately going to heaven when we die although going to heaven and going to the presence of jesus when we die will be wonderful it will be so much greater than the present age that we live in but that's not the end goal. The end goal is 
that God is going to do for us what he has already done for Jesus. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we also will be raised from the dead and live forever in a brand new creation. And that's what we've got to look forward to. And so when you're thinking, what, what is it as an individual that is my ultimate hope? Um, the answer is you are gonna get to live in a resurrection body, in a brand new creation, in the presence of Jesus. That's the end goal. You see, if the ultimate hope was you die and your soul goes to be with Jesus, that's wonderful, but actually that's not, that's not Jesus defeating death. That's an embrace of death and saying, well, you know what, at the end of the day, we die, but at least we go to be with Jesus. But the gospel is the message of how Jesus has defeated death. And how do you defeat death? You don't defeat by die. You don't defeat death by dying. You defeat death by rising from the dead. And just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead because we are joined to Jesus. It's a wonderful hope. It's an amazing hope. And it's what the church has confessed for centuries. If um, any of you are familiar with some of the major creeds throughout church history, um, I don't know how it is that this idea that um, the end goal for Christians was to kind of float on clouds with harps in a disembodied state. I don't know when that idea appeared, but it's not in the major creeds and confessions of the church because the major creeds and confessions of the church, such as the Nicene creeds, maybe some of you have used that before, have confessed it, maybe even done preaching series on it, ends with, we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And that's a brilliant summary of what Christian hope is. Christian hope is not you embrace death and you're but you you're in the presence of God for eternity. That's wonderful. I don't want to diminish that. Every time I say it, it's almost like I'm saying that's rubbish. No, it isn't. It's glorious. But the hope for Christians is the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, which is wonderful. Um, at this stage, are there any questions at all? We've just got a couple more things to, to look through before we um, before we finish. But are there any, any questions at all on resurrection, death and, and so on? Nope. Well, you've got a few more details um, again in, in your notes, um, particularly in terms of one thing that might be really interesting you, for you to do as an exercise is, is tracking. Um, when you read through the Bible, we believe in what we might call progressive revelation, which is the idea that early on in the scriptures, um, you don't have as much information as later on in the scriptures. It doesn't mean that they contradict each other, but it means that there's stuff that's revealed later in the story that you wouldn't have been aware of beforehand. And understanding the reality of death and what goes on after death is one of those things that what you see is a progression from in the Old Testament, a pretty bleak view of death, to be honest, to an understanding that for those in Christ, death is actually gain. And it might be interesting if you in your own time to have a look at some of the passages that I've put in your notes in the Old Testament to think, how is it that people in the Old Testament understood the reality of life after death? And how is it that as followers of Jesus, we have a much greater, much more joy filled, much more hope filled understanding of life after death. So you might want to look at that. What we're now going to do is a little bit of a visual exercise, um, which should be fun, which is we've just done the kind of big picture. We've then zoomed in a little bit more onto what happens to us as individuals. We're now going to zoom out slightly, but not quite as far as we did at the beginning which is to ask the question, what happens when? So we've got a timeline kind of along here at the bottom. And um, I'm just going to kind of work through what things happen in what order. So if we're thinking about what are events that we would expect to happen and in what order would we expect them to happen in, then um, we're going to try and arrange those. So we're going to start with stuff that we know for sure. The eternal state. 
there we got is pretty much i mean you can basically guarantee that's at the end because that's what we experience for the whole of eternity so new creation hell which we'll talk about in a second what we also know is jesus's resurrection and ascension kind of let me just get rid of the pouring out of the spirit bit kind of mark the beginning of the the beginning of the of the of the new age but then we've got all of these other things in the middle that happen between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the eternal state. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pop in order those that we're basically, we know what order they come in. And then I'm going to show you which ones there's a little bit more debate about. Now, what I will suggest is on the destruction of Jerusalem is in 70 AD. That might not sound like an end time event to us, but actually in the conception of the biblical writers. Oh, sorry, the screen sharing seems to have paused. Let me resume that. Can you still see it? Weird. Okay, it says on my, on my screen it says it's paused. Can you see it when I drag the stuff around? Is that that's working? Great. Okay, for some reason it's saying it's not working on my screen. Um, destruction of Jerusalem, seventy A.D. That would have been thought of very much as a wow. This is a cataclysmic, earth-shaking event. Um, so might not feel like an end times thing to us, but it very much is part of the scheme that the Bible has for the end times. That after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, one of the events that happens is the destruction of Jerusalem. And that happened in 70 AD by the Romans. Um, another thing that we have, and this happened before the destruction of Jerusalem, is the pouring out of the spirit. That is another end time event in the sense that the biblical hope was that in the age to come, the spirit would be poured out. But we have already experienced the pouring out of the spirit. So it shows you we're already, in some sense, living in the age to come, but not fully. So the pouring out of the spirit happened at the day of Pentecost. Um, by the way, that we're not going to be able to put these all side by side. So I'm going to have to. Um, the Great Tribulation, on my understanding of it, on my interpretation of it, and some people would disagree, when the Bible uses the phrase the Great Tribulation, um, my reading of it is it's a way of referring to the whole of the church age but from the perspective of suffering now there may be certain periods within church history where suffering is more intense it may even be that before the return of jesus suffering does get particularly intense but my understanding is that when the bible talks about the great tribulation we're not meant to be thinking oh, it's fine that's not going to happen for ages that actually we look at it and we think when we see Christians around the world suffering for their faith, we can say there is a tribulation in the age that we live in. And so in that sense, you could say the great tribulation kind of begins really after the pouring out of the spirit, because within a few chapters in Acts, you already start to see the church suffering for the gospel. And that continues all the way throughout church history. Right. We now have the gospel proclaimed to the whole world. Jesus says that the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations and then the end will come. So we know that that is going to be before the eternal state, but it still hasn't happened yet. So it must be after the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, we also realize the second coming cannot happen until the gospel has been proclaimed to all, all nations. And the rapture, which um, in some circles means something quite specific and um, the idea of almost like a, that the church gets secretly taken away to heaven for a while. Uh, on my reading of the New Testament, the, the rapture is a reference to the fact that when Jesus returns, those who are his and who are raised from the dead are caught up with him um, in the sky. So in other words, it's the kind of Jesus is coming back. 
though the dead in christ are raised and they go to meet jesus in the air as he returns and so in that sense um some of you may have been faced with the question is the rapture biblical what people usually mean by that is is the secret rapture biblical the idea that at some point suddenly millions millions of christians around the world disappear because they've been taken away and on my reading of the new testament i don't think i don't really see evidence of that and i think the passages that people use to justify it i think are um are referring to something else but um we could have a debate about that but now might not be the time um final judgment is also something that happens before the eternal state and so i would say these are things that i'm pretty confident in terms of the order that they happen and then we have this thing called the millennium <laughs> which uh, you can look at a little bit more in your own time on the notes on revelation but um it's the idea of there being in a thousand year period where people are reigning with christ uh, the believers are reigning with Christ. Now, broadly speaking, there are three interpretations of this. Either it is a way of referring to the whole church age, that already as believers, we are reigning with Christ because of his death and resurrection. That's called amillennialism. Or it's a reference to something that happens after the return of Jesus. So we might pop it here. Um, and that after the return of Jesus, there is a resurrection of those who are followers of him and for a thousand years they reign on earth before you then get final judgment that would be what's called premillennialism and the reason it's called premillennialism is that jesus returns before or pre the millennium another option is called postmillennialism and as the word post suggests it means that jesus returns after the millennium and at that point people would say well the millennium is something that isn't happening yet it's a period in the future where there will be a particularly um, peaceful time for the church, a time of real evangelistic fruit before the return of Jesus. And at that point, we might pop it somewhere like here and we might say, well, we're not in it yet. But at some point in the future, we'll see amazing evangelistic breakthrough and we'll know we're in the millennium. And after the millennium, Jesus returns. But I'm going to pop the millennium up here at the top to let you know that we're, like, it's not the kind of thing you can just pinpoint and say that's definitely happening in that order. So that's kind of a, a, a kind of bird's eye view of the main events that the Bible seems to associate with um, the end times. So if you wanted to um, think through which order broadly are we expecting stuff to happen um, to happen in, um, hopefully that answers your, your question, Keith, a little bit in terms of um, some things to say about the millennium. I won't be able to go into too much detail. Um, the best way of looking at... Um, arguments for premillennialism, arguments for postmillennialism, and arguments for amillennialism would probably be either a good commentary on Revelation or perhaps more helpful would be something like Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, where he has a chapter in there where he's got a few pages where he really goes into a bit more depth. Um, and that will probably be the most helpful way of you getting your heads around what are the arguments for each point of view and trying to, I think it is important to think it through and to think, where do I land on it? Um, but it is also important to recognize this is a very debated um, thing. So um, you may come very strongly down on a particular position. Um, but I think if the Bible is not crystal clear on something and it only appears once, it doesn't mean it's not important. But I think what it does mean is that there are other things that are perhaps more important to be focusing most of our energy on. And that our view of the millennium may is an important thing, but it may, may not be the main thing that dictates the way that we live um there we go okay well 
we are almost at the end uh, of time <laughs> of our time together i don't think we're quite at the end of time in that sense but um which means i think it makes sense to talk about the eternal state and so very briefly it's uh, let's just say a few words about hell which is not the most fun thing to say uh, to say stuff about but nonetheless is it's there in the bible and so i think it would be wrong to not say anything about it um it's one of the hard, probably one of the hardest doctrines for the Western church to, to accept. And I think that's probably because, well, probably partly because we live in a, we live in a society where the idea that God should love and forgive everyone is almost taken for granted. I think rewind a few hundred years, that would not have been the default position of most people. And I think most cultures around the world, the idea that God owes it to us to love us and forgive us um would not be the default that people would have um, and so i think there's some cultural reasons for that um but maybe another one of the reasons that hell is uncomfortable is that sometimes it's it's been a it's been caricatured over the centuries so i think you think of things like dante's inferno in the in the middle ages and it's almost this idea of hell being this arbitrary divine torture chamber like god is basically just enjoying inflicting as much pain as he can for the whole of eternity and i think that again is that's not the biblical image of of hell um but nonetheless the bible does talk about hell and i think here are a few things and we're just going to whiz through this we're not going to go to questions so much necessarily partly because um i'd probably be tempted to dull down some of the stuff and i think on something like this it's helpful to just give uh, here's what i think the bible teaches and we need to ask god to partly use that to propel us into mission but also help us to grow in trusting him that his wisdom is the most uh, is higher than ours and so maybe the, the first thing i'd say is that hell biblically is a place where justice is done and so in that sense it's it is a place of punishment but it's not arbitrary and i think that's really important to say and so i think one of my bedrocks when it comes to thinking of hell is to however much emotionally i don't i'm not able to deal with it and i'm not able to get my head around emotionally the idea of eternal punishment my bedrock is that it's a place of justice and what that means is on that final day no one is going to be standing there questioning god's decision everyone's going to be standing there saying that was perfectly just and that's going to be my bedrock in a sense it's a it's an act of faith it's an act of choosing to trust that the judge of the whole world will do what is right and i think that's really important when we're talking about the doctrine of hell um, the fact that it's a place of judgment is also really important in terms of comfort, because it means that hell is a place where evil is destroyed. And so in that sense, hell very often in the New Testament, it might seem strange to us, but it's the way that it's often used in the New Testament is used as comfort for Christians who are undergoing persecution. And I don't think it's comfort in the sense that they are looking forward to the fact that their enemies are going to be suffering for eternity, but it's comfort in the sense of evil will be destroyed evil will be dealt the decisive blow all wrongs will be put right and god is doing something so that um for example that the imagery of unquenchable fire is probably not primarily about pain i think there's other images that use the idea of pain and emotional pain and distress but the image of fire in the when it comes to hell is probably more the idea of evil being thoroughly burnt up and thoroughly dealt with and that's actually a huge comfort to know that what god is doing is dealing with the problem of evil um another thing is hell is permanent and this this is true whether you go for the traditional view which i think is 
it would be the view that I that I lean towards, partly just because it's the view that the whole has been taken for the whole of church history. And so I'm going to be very careful before saying that the church has believed something for 2000 years that we now realize is wrong. But if you take the traditional view of hell as eternal conscious torment, then it's obviously everlasting. But even if you were to go for uh, what might be called the annihilationist view, which is the idea that hell is a place where the wicked are destroyed, finally, and are not necessarily experiencing punishment for eternity, it's still final. It's still decisive. There's no coming out. Um, and so I think whether you go for the um, traditional view, which I would argue is um, the probably the right one, or for a view that some evangelicals take, which would be annihilationism, the idea that it's the, the wicked being ultimately destroyed, it's still final. There's no way out. In that sense, it's different to the Roman Catholic idea of purgatory, where you kind of get this refining over thousands and thousands of years and you eventually make it into heaven. Hell is a play, the final destination in that sense. And it's devoid of the goodness of creation. It's referred to as outer darkness. And um, I think C.S. Lewis was once asked about hell and, um, and, and said, oh, you do realize that the images about hell are not meant to be taken literally, they're images. At which point people said, oh, phew, that's comforting to know. And his response was to say, Oh, no, 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 they're talking about something that's far worse than the images. And I think that's there's there's something of the, the, the weightiness and the horrors of hell that we do need to feel. And um, that can be used as comfort because it's a place where evil is destroyed. But I think it's it's not the main way that the New Testament uses hell. But I don't think it's inappropriate for us to see the horrors of hell and think, I don't want I don't want my friends to go there. I don't want my family to go there. I want them to meet Jesus and be saved from an eternity of just punishment from, from God. But for those of us who are in Christ, and this would be the best place to end rather than ending by talking about hell, which I don't think would be a, a great way of finishing a day on eschatology, we could finish by talking about new creation. And um, would have been wonderful maybe to, to have a whole half hour, 45 minutes to go into groups, look at different passages from very often from the Old Testament, actually. But I think the, the best images of what does new creation look like very often come from the prophets in the Old Testament, places like Isaiah 25, Amos 9, Micah 4, Zechariah 8. Um, so it would have been wonderful to look at those passages, share our thoughts with one another. I'd encourage you to do that in your own time. But um, a passage that I'd like to finish on and then we will we will be done is Romans 8 verses 18 to 25, because I think what it does is it takes the reality of our own personal individual sufferings and difficulties in this life. And it puts it in the context of what God is doing to the whole of creation when Christ returns. And I think it's, it's such a powerful passage. So let me read it out and I might just pause a few places to comment before we before we finish. So Paul is aware that Christians go through suffering and that that's actually a central part of what it means to be a Christian is to suffer with Christ. But he then says this in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Isn't that amazing? Creation is waiting. Creation's waiting for that final day. What's it waiting for? Well, as we'll see in a minute, it is partly waiting for the for for being set free from the curse that has come as a result of the fall. That's partly what it's waiting for. But what Paul says it's waiting for in verse 19 is it's wa waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, the mountains, the trees, the fields, the 
sheep, the cows, the dogs, every all all creation in some sense is waiting for the moment when you and me and the rest of God's people are revealed to the whole of creation to be the children of God. There's a moment coming when Christ returns and we are raised from the dead and our bodies transform where we will be displayed to the whole of creation and the whole of creation will go, these ones, they are the sons of God. They are the children of God. And creation is waiting for that moment. Our, our destiny and the destiny of creation are bound up together. It's wonderful. Verse 20, for creation was subjected to futility. There's been a curse on creation, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only um, the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? In other words, if you can if you can see something in front of you, it's not hope because you've got it already. We hope for something that we haven't yet seen. We're hoping for the day when creation is rid of the curse as that amazing hymn, Joy to the World, which apparently uh, I only discovered this week is not actually a Christmas carol. It was originally written about the second coming. And it makes sense when you hear the hear some of the verses, no more let sins nor sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. It's like Christ will return and the curse that has come upon creation will be lifted. We will be raised to everlasting life. And that's what we're hoping for. We haven't seen it yet. Who hopes for what he sees? You don't hope for something that you've already got. You've got it already. You hope for that which you don't yet have. And then Paul says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Our destiny and the destiny of creation are bound up. Creation was put under a curse of futility and that curse will be lifted when the true descendants of Adam, those who are in Christ, those who are joined to the second Adam are raised from the dead and the curse will be lifted. The first Adam failed and that led to a curse of fruitlessness. The second Adam succeeded and is leading many, many sons to glory. And when they are revealed, to the whole of creation, the curse of creation will be lifted and we will live for the whole of eternity with Christ in a brand new creation without sin or sickness or evil or decay or suffering. And that will be glorious. It will be filled with the presence of God. And I think that is a wonderful thought to, to dwell on for the rest of the day. So I realize I've gone slightly over, but um, it's been wonderful being able to, to share this with you. Hopefully you can tell it makes me excited. I hope that it gets you excited as well and, and fuels an appetite for not just studying it but looking for this to change the way that we think and to impact the way that we live so that along with paul we're able to say to one another therefore stand firm knowing that your labor in the lord is not in vain because we have hope so let me quickly pray and then i'll hand over to andy father we thank you for we thank you for the hope that we have we thank you for jesus that he's won and therefore we will win we thank you that we have a hope of eternal life and that every evil and suffering and difficulty that has faced us in the present, all of the evils that we've experienced over these last couple of years and the suffering as a result of COVID and lockdown and even losing 
loved ones maybe to to this disease we thank you that this momentary weight of affliction is built is 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 leading to a far greater weight of glory it's not even worth comparing and so father i pray you would help us to live in the present in light of eternity that we would be most fruitful for your kingdom we pray for this in jesus name amen